Open your Bibles, if you will, to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 14. And I believe in the Pew Bible, if you're using that, it's on page 1008, but let me check and see. Yeah, 1008. I was thinking this morning um, when I was getting ready to come here that most of the people I would be preaching to in this service were not alive when my wife and I came to Faith Church on September 10th, 1985. So I'm looking out, and I think that's probably uh, fairly, fairly accurate. We just had our 36th anniversary here at Faith, and it's been a wonderful place to fellowship and worship the Lord and raise our children and that kind of thing. And um, it's been a good time. Let's follow as I read Mark 14, 32 through 42. They went to a place called Gethsemane, and Jesus said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. And he took Peter and James and John along with him, and he began to be deeply distressed and troubled. My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death, he said to them. Stay here and keep watch. Going a little further, he fell to the ground and prayed that if possible, the hour might pass from him. Abba, Father, he said, everything is possible for you. Take this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. Then he returned to his disciples and found them sleeping. Simon, he said to Peter, are you asleep? Could you not watch for one hour? Watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the body is weak. Once more he went away and prayed the same thing, and when he came back, he again found them sleeping because their eyes were heavy. They did not know what to say to him. Returning the third time, he said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? Enough. The hour has come. Look, the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us go. Here comes my betrayer. In 1992, as senior pastor of this church, I was going through one of the darkest times in my entire ministry. I've been a pastor for about 18 years. I was used to handling the kinds of problems that typically come up in a church, but this was not like anything I had ever experienced. So much was happening at the same time that the only analogy I could find for what was going on was that of what I expect an air traffic controller goes through when he or she is directing multiple planes in his or her airspace and is responsible for each of them at one and the same time to get them either through the space or get them to the ground. For the first time in my ministry, I found myself face down in the carpet of our family room, pouring my soul out to the Lord, asking for strength to get through, and for the struggles that were going on all over the place in the church I loved to go away. I was anxious, I was fearful, I was emotionally exhausted and drained. I was functioning, but barely so. 
And given the crushing load that was upon me, the only prayer position that felt reasonable to me was prostrate on the floor in that family room. Question for you. Have you been in a similar life situation? Have you been in deepest agony of soul? Have you been in darkness so thick that you questioned whether you would survive it? If you have been, and you can remember that experience, it will help you to some small degree to identify with what Jesus is going through in our scripture text on the night before his crucifixion. Now, Jesus had just uh, experienced the Lord's Supper. He had celebrated the Lord's Supper, uh, the Passover feast with his apostles. He took that ancient feast of Israel and converted it into his supper. Judas had gone to the religious authorities to arrange to take them to meet Jesus for Jesus' arrest, trial, and crucifixion. The Lord and 11 of his apostles leave that upper room where they had celebrated the Passover feast. They walk through the streets of dark Jerusalem to the place where I believe they went every night during Passover to get away from the crowd in the city that just overflowed with people on the week of the feast. It was sort of like Bethany Beach on Labor Day weekend to be in Jerusalem when Passover was taking place. Mark 14.32 records, Jesus and the eleven went to a place called Gethsemane. Luke tells us in 22.39, Jesus went, as was his custom, to the Mount of Olives, and his disciples followed him. John records in John 18.1 and 2, he went across the Kidron Valley, over the Kidron Brook, where there was a garden which he and his disciples entered. Judas knew the place, for Jesus had often met there with his disciples. Now, this garden was probably a garden of olive trees, because Gethsemane, we believe, means oil press. And it was likely a place of tranquility and fellowship and prayer during Passover in the evenings for Jesus and his apostles. But whatever pleasantness Jesus had previously experienced in this garden was not to be replicated on this night before his crucifixion. The dark terror of soul that our Lord experiences on this night in this garden will only be surpassed by the terror that he experiences the next day when he hangs between earth and sky on a cruel Roman cross. Now, I'd like us to see first this morning that Jesus is fully human, and we see that here in the garden. Our text tells us in Mark 14, 32, that Jesus said to eight of his apostles, sit here while I pray. But verse 33 informs us that he took Peter, James, and John with him to a place away from the other eight. Now, these three men have been alone with Jesus on other extraordinary occasions in his life, when other things have occurred that were extraordinary. And there are all kinds of reasons given as to why this is true, and I wish we had time to go over some of them. They're very interesting. 
But it is likely that these three get to be witnesses of the more momentous events in Jesus' ministry for two reasons. One is that Peter, James, and John will play the most significant roles in the establishment of the New Testament church. And so when Jesus needs a small group to be with him as opposed to a group of 12, it's very logical that he would take these three men who are the pillars among the pillars for the New Testament church. But I want to pound home today another reason. I believe Jesus felt especially close to these three because Jesus is fully human. He's fully divine, but he's fully human. As a human, there was a greater closeness between him and these three than there was between him and other people. Now, that doesn't mean that Jesus doesn't love everyone, but he had a special bond with these three as a human. And I'm going to suggest to you and hopefully prove to you that Jesus' actions in Gethsemane on this night lend support to the view that he had a special emotional and spiritual connection to these three. Now, as Jesus leads, these three go with him to a place in the garden distant from the other eight. And Mark tells us in verses 33 and 34 of your text that at this time, and this is incredibly significant, Jesus began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful even to death. Now, Jesus had been focused upon death and his death all evening. Passover pointed to Jesus' death. He had been thinking about that as he sat at the table with the twelve. But as he takes these three to be close to him while he prays about his death in an intense way, a great tidal wave of terror suddenly washes over his soul. Now, one way for us to begin to identify with what happens to Jesus that I could think of is to assume or to uh, pretend that we go into a doctor's office and they put us in one of those little rooms and the doctor comes in and sits down and he starts tapping on his computer and he pulls up some information and the look on his face is as blank as could be and then he swivels in that little chair and turns to us and says, the tests that I order for, ordered for you indicate that you have cancer. And it's a cancer that's not very treatable. Just think of the flood of anxiety and dread that would wash over you in a situation like that. The horror Jesus faces in just hours, the horror he sees now fully with his mind's eye, transcends any horror you and I will ever experience in this life. And it feels to Jesus like just the thoughts of what he will go through on that cross might kill him right here in the garden. Now, Mark 14, 34 records Jesus is saying to Peter, James, and John, remain here and watch. Luke records Jesus is saying in Luke 22:40, pray that you might not enter into temptation. Now, I think it's very reasonable to assume that Jesus said both of these things, watch and pray, 
Because he does that in other places in Scripture, the two commands are often paired by Jesus. There's no contradiction here. The gospel writer is not bound to say every word that Jesus, to record every word that Jesus said. To watch is to be wide awake, to be like a sentry on his or her post. Now, a sentry, when we think about it, typically looks out for danger out there somewhere, threats from without. In the New Testament, to watch is most often a command to guard one's own actions, one's own thoughts, heart, or mind. Now, here is where we begin to see Jesus' special emotional connection to Peter, James, and John. Jesus, in his hour of greatest need to date, terrorized by the thoughts of the full meaning of the cross, chooses to have these three men to be the ones who are closest to him. Some, a phrase that we can blow right over in Matthew 26, 38 that I think is more significant than we give, give it credit for in the light of what we're discussing this morning, records this. Jesus says, watch with me. I think the with me is very telling. He needed these people to be near him. Now, I'm going to say it throughout the sermon. Jesus is one person with two distinct natures, fully divine and fully human, just like yours. He had a body like yours, except he was without sin. In your most troubling life experiences, don't you desire to have present one or more of those with whom you are emotionally close? If you were going to be wheeled into a surgical suite tomorrow for major surgery, wouldn't you like to have two or three people who are close to you in your room when they start the IV drip and put that anesthetic into the line and begin to sedate you? And when they wheeled you down the hall and you were ready to go into those doors, would it be good to have a couple people there with you? And wouldn't it be good to know when they start the anesthesia that those people are outside in the waiting room and they're watching and they're praying with you, the man Christ Jesus, experiencing the terror in his soul, needed that kind of support of closest friends. Now, Jesus in Mark 14, 35, puts a little space between himself and Peter, James, and John. Luke writes that it was about a stone's throw. Typically, that's about 50 feet. Jesus needs to have friends close by for emotional support, the support of their presence. He desires to have them praying for themselves and for him, but he must wrestle alone with God in prayer as he struggles with his burden that is absolutely crushing him. If the perfect, sinless Christ Jesus needed strong connectedness to others of like precious faith to get through life, you do too. I had a Christian tell me a few years ago that he didn't need any friends. And at that time in his life, from what I could tell, his life was going swimmingly well. That world came apart, as it does for most of us in time. Life is unpredictable. Few get through it unscathed. We all need closeness with some who can bear our burdens with us. 
and we theirs with them, so Christ's law of love, Galatians 6.2, can be fulfilled. Galatians 6.2, bear one another's burdens and thus fulfill the law of Christ. The law of Christ is to love one another. As he loved us, we love one another in part by bearing one another's burdens. Take the initiative to establish a deep level of connection with some people in the body of Christ so that when your crisis comes, you will have the support Jesus needed in his crisis. Connect so that you can provide support for others in their crisis. Now, we have done incredible damage to connectedness during COVID. I mean, my wife and I experienced it. We used to have four couples at a time to dinner in our house. We went down to one other couple if they would come, that kind of thing. But look what statistically has happened to friendships in recent years in the U.S. This is called, What is Happening to Friendship? It's from uh, a survey by, should have told you that before I picked up the survey, the Enterprise Institute, I don't know much about them, but in 1990, their survey indicated that 63% of Americans reported having five or more close friends. Five or more close friends. In 2021, the figure had dropped to 38%. It's almost half, um, a drop of almost half. Sadly, it says, the number of Americans reporting zero close friends, what would you guess it is? It used to be 3% in 1990. It's 12% now. In the garden, we see that Jesus is fully human. In the garden, we see that prayer is a means of grace, and this is so important. Mark records in 1435 that Jesus, after leaving Peter, James, and John at a distance that allowed probably for them to see him, I don't know how the trees were planted in the garden, certainly they could hear him, less than 50 feet, that Jesus fell on the ground and prayed. Matthew writes in 2639 that Jesus fell on his face and prayed, Luke records in Luke 22:41 41 that Jesus knelt down and prayed. Now, I have exegeted and taught Scripture for 48 years. I have never found a contradiction in Scripture. There are people that are always trying to look for them and to destroy the foundations of Christian faith. I have never found a contradiction. You have to force Scripture to think that you could come up with contradictions. It's without error in the way it was recorded when God revealed it. Now think about this. Since Jesus prays on three separate occasions in the garden, returning to Peter, James, and John between those prayer sessions, an easy way around what seems to be a, discre a discrepancy is to understand that it's likely that Jesus prayed both on his knees, head to the ground, and spread out on his face on the ground. Now, these prayer postures were unusual for Jews. How did Jews usually pray? Usually they lifted up their head to heaven and lifted up their hands and prayed, and that's how Jesus prayed on other occasions. But with his soul sorrowful to the point of death, praying on his knees with his face to the ground, and praying prone with his face in garden earth are the only prayer postures that feel in any way adequate to the burden that Jesus 
is carrying. And remember who creates that barrier, that burden. It's us, our sin. Calvin writes, by the very gesture of falling on the ground, Christ testifies to the real intensity of his prayer. Now listen to this. He places himself in the lowest attitude for the greatest of his grief. Places himself in the lowest attitude for the greatness of his grief. Luke the physician in 2242 writes that Jesus being in agony, a word that's like a struggle in a, in a wrestling match, bitter striving, fierce conflict, prayed more earnestly and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling on the ground. Now, you have heard of cold sweats, I'm pretty sure. It, there's a medical term for it, diaphoresis, and it refers to sudden sweating that doesn't come from heat or exertion, but from the body's response to stress. Pat and I love to travel. We've been to, we've been to Yellowstone a number of times uh, to Glacier National Park. If we were walking along a trail and we see a giant bear like one we've never seen before, and she has cubs, cold sweats, and then death before she even gets near us, the grizzly. What terrifies the soul of Jesus in this way? How is it that countless martyrs have had sticks piled around them and the match lighted, and they didn't feel anything like the terror Jesus experiences? Let me show you where the answer is. It's found in one of the words of Jesus' prayer in Mark 14, 36. Do you know which word it is? It's the word cup. Christ prays, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. In Scripture, to drink a cup can be a good thing or a bad thing. You can drink the cup of salvation. That's a really good thing. But Jesus' cup was filled to the brim with the wrath of God that is the just dessert of every single elect sinner. In just hours, Jesus will suffer the cruelest death humans can suffer. I used to think dying by burning would be the worst way. But honestly and truly, crucifixion was designed to extend the terror of punishment as long as was possible. In addition, Christ is going to bear our sins in his sinless person on the cross. He's going to be counted by his heavenly Father as a sinner, and he's going to experience the punishment we deserve to experience in hell for all eternity. He will experience our hell fully, if we're a believer, or one day will be, so that we might escape it and be reckoned to be as sinless as the one hanging on the tree who takes it for us. What Jesus experienced vicariously in the garden, the thing that terrorized him to a degree that we cannot imagine is what people without Christ in resurrected bodies are going to experience in hell for all eternity. That terror will be their terror. Could you be one that's going to experience that? Jesus' terror in the garden in this text should drive you to repentance and to faith 
in him. Faith is your only means of escaping the wrath of God poured out on you forever and forever. But we're sitting here, and a lot of us are believers, maybe most of us. Jesus' physical and emotional reaction to the thought of drinking this cup should drive believers to fervently pray for and to proactively evangelize unbelievers. If your friends and relatives and neighbors don't hear, if mine don't hear the good news and receive Jesus in this life, the garden terror is their terror forever. Now, I've been saying this for at least the last 10 years in staff meetings all over the place. I believe the evangelical church today knows its theology of heaven and hell, but I think we have become practical universalists. You know what a universalist is? God is loving in time. Everybody, you know, that dies, no matter what they believe, is going to be with Jesus. Now, I believe that because we act like that. If we really believe this stuff, we would be more passionate about telling people about Jesus than we are concerned about the fact that they might not like us or they might cut us off or whatever. And I can tell you that the people that sat where we sit in 1963 in this church were not like that. They were passionate about sharing their faith. And I know because I buried a bunch of them over time. They were here when I came. They passed out gospel tracts. They had five-day clubs in their homes for little kids. I know the culture has changed. But what has happened to a greater degree is we've gotten to the point where Satan has neutralized us with regard to evangelism. You just can't do that. You can't not tell your children about Jesus because you're afraid to offend them and then maybe stand by their coffin someday and know that you have not shared the gospel with them. You can't do that. Now, in Jesus' prayer, we see an intense battle of wills. There is the Father's will that he drink the cup of the Father's wrath as a substitute for sinners. And there is the will of the Son which recoils from the thought of that. Again, listen to what Calvin says, and we don't worship him. He sometimes, well, he always says things better than I can. He said it was not the simple horror of death, but the sight of the dread tribunal of God that came to him. The judge himself armed with vengeance beyond understanding. Now, if that's what Jesus saw, and I think Calvin's right on the money, is it any wonder that as a fully human person, Jesus would pray that if there is any way that he could bypass this and man still be reconciled to God, that his Father would use that way? Now, in Jesus' prayer, we also see some other things. We see the battle of the, the will of the Father, the will of the Son. But in Jesus' prayer, we see his absolute confidence in the sovereignty of God. What did he say? Father, all things are possible for you. In it, and I love this, we see the Son's unwavering confidence in the relationship that exists between him and his Father. So in spite of this horrible, traumatic plan that God has for him, He's using that most affectionate term, Father. 
I think this is the test of real Christian faith. You know, when things are going really bad in your life, do you still call out to him as the affection still there, Father? In his prayer, we also see Jesus' complete submission to the will of God. Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup, yet not as I will, but what you will. Look, there are things in your life that you want. There are things in your life that you really want to avoid. You know, pray. If they're not contrary to God's will, ask. There are probably things that you want and I want that are contrary to God's revealed will. I would say take them to him in prayer anyway. He already knows our heart before we ask. But whenever we pray, we must not seek to impose our own will on our Heavenly Father. Instead, we are to pray for his will to be accomplished in and through us. This is how Jesus prayed. This is how he taught us to pray. Always as part of every prayer, whether it's expressed or unexpressed, there is the thy will be done petition that comes from a heart that knows that God's will is always best for us and for his own glory. So in agonizing face in the dirt prayer, Jesus resolved the struggle of his will versus God's will by choosing voluntary, absolute surrender to the Father's will. In his prayer struggle, he is assured that suffering and death are the only way, and suffering hell, the only way for the Father to show his righteousness so that he might be just and the justifier of those who have faith in Jesus Christ. That's Romans 3.25. Do you know the glory of the gospel? The glory of the gospel is that the just God who said in the day that you eat of it, you will surely die, the wages of sin is death, maintains his just character by carrying out the punishment for sin, the punishment that he said ran with sin, but he also declares us to be holy in his son Jesus. How does he do that? He takes our sin, transfers it to Jesus, and Jesus suffers hell for us, and he can do it because he doesn't deserve it, and he can do it because his humanity is sustained by his divine nature. But he dies as a human. Jesus returns to his prayer partners three times, and he finds them sleeping. On each of the first two occasions, he confronts them with their failure to be alert and their need to pray, and he reminds them that their prayers are not just for him, but they are for them. You see, they're going to be tempted to forsake him on this night, and if they are not fortified by the grace that comes through prayer, if they don't have inner strength that comes from God, they're going to fail miserably. I'm amazed that in Jesus' deepest struggle, he's thinking about the needs of his apostles. They need to pray for themselves. He's concerned for them. That's just amazing to me. The Lord addresses Peter, Mark 14, 37, when challenging the sleeping apostles. But the verb he uses is plural. This message is for each of the three. And here it is in Mark 14, 38. Could you not watch and pray that you might not enter into temptation? The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Now, Jesus returns to his private prayer place 
or two times after first finding the apostles asleep. Mark 14, 39 informs us that his subsequent prayers, subsequent to the first one, were basically repetitions of the first that we have looked at. From reading Jesus' interactions with these three disciples, when he returns to find them sleeping, it's obvious to me that my Lord and your Lord has been strengthened immensely by his first and subsequent prayer sessions. Jesus' prayers haven't changed what Jesus must experience. What have they done? They've radically changed Jesus. The intense agony of his soul that he experienced before the initial prayer time has been dramatically lightened. And that's what prayer does. It changes us even when the requests we make aren't granted immediately or they're not granted at all. Prayer is a means of grace. God grows us in faith and infuses us with strength when we pray. Now, the writer of Hebrews invites you to come in your time of need to God's throne for grace. He says in 4, 15 and 16, we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. All right, what do we do with that? Let us then with confidence draw near, that's in prayer, to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in our time of need. This invitation for us to go to our high priest who has lived our struggles, and I never saw this before until I prepared the sermon, and that tells you the, the intense ignorance that lies in this pastor. It's tied to Jesus' struggle in Gethsemane. A few verses after the invitation to go for grace in Hebrews 5, 7, the sacred author writes, in the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death, and he was hurt. Do you see that? It's the garden experience that causes the author to say, come and get grace. Jesus went through that experience. He got grace in his prayer. God strengthened Jesus as he does us through the word. When you pray, you think about the scripture. Jesus was doing that through the work of his Holy Spirit, a supernatural work in our souls. But he also sent Jesus an angel. We see that in Luke 22, 43, to strengthen Jesus. Now, the scripture tells us that angels are ministering spirits sent to serve those who inherit salvation, Hebrews 1, 13 and 14. It makes perfectly good theology. I am not at all afraid of being tried by Presbytery, if they hear this, to say that when you pray, it's very possible and likely that in a time of great need, God sends an angel or a couple angels to come and to strengthen you when you pour out your heart to God in those times of trouble. Now, the grace Jesus received in prayer is really seen when he returns to the sleeping disciples the last time. Look at this. He doesn't come as one who's panicked, depressed, and nearly immobilized by thoughts of the journey into hell that awaits him tomorrow. He comes to them as one who has gained victory 
over the flesh that recoiled from making his sinless soul an offering for your sin. His confident comment to his sleeping disciples is found in verses 41 and 42 of our text. Listen to it. Are you still sleeping and taking your rest? It is enough. The hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. This is not the Jesus who prayed in a cold, possibly bloody sweat. Our Lord, again, one person, two full natures, fully human, fully divine. But he experienced Calvary, the wrath of God poured out on humans as a sinless human. Only in human nature could he suffer punishment as the perfect substitute for you, your human. The Father's answer to the Son's ardent prayer was, no, it is not possible for the cup to be removed from you. You must drink it. But through prayer, Jesus has been made ready to confidently meet his captors, boldly face unjust trials, and to victoriously endure the cross. Do you think of prayer primarily as a means of receiving things, getting things for you and for others? There's nothing wrong with that. That's one of the aspects of prayer. Uh, James tells us that there are things we will never have if we don't ask. But Gethsemane teaches us that prayer accomplishes much more. Prayer brings our will into conformity with God's holy will. It brings the grace of God to us so that we can have strength and peace in our struggles, and prayer even gives us access to the ministry of angels in our lives. Very quickly, very quickly, in the garden, we're assured of Jesus' love for his own. To really understand the scope of this struggle in Jesus' life is to begin to plumb the depths of Jesus' love for his own. The thought of having to experience the cross for you, for me, created panic in Jesus. It created anxiety, dread that left him prostrate on the ground in the garden. It caused his body to react in ways that are not normal. Cold sweat of panic poured from Jesus' body as he looked ahead to the cross. It's also possible that the thought of the absolute terror of God's wrath that would be poured out on Jesus' soul on the morrow caused him to actually sweat blood, Luke 22:44. Luke may not have been using a figure of speech when he described Jesus sweating. He may have recorded a medical phenomena known as hematidrosis, where under intense physical and emotional trauma, and I've read of the trauma that has done this to people in recent years. I couldn't mention it from the pulpit. In very rare instances, capillaries in the sweat glands rupture with blood finding its way out with the sweat from the sweat ducts. In the garden, Jesus confirms his unwavering commitment to drain the cup of God's wrath. He sees with his mind's eye the tribunal and himself in the dock condemned as a sinner facing the prescribed punishment for sin. And what he vicariously experiences produces such shock, such trauma, 
that I believe, I take this view, that sweat mixed with blood pours down his face to the ground. And look, I have sinned against a holy God. If you know anything about E, the analogy is, suppose you only committed three sins a day. In a year, a thousand sins, more than that. You live 30 years, 50 years, only three sins a day. Incredible pile of sin that we have racked up. I deserve to drain the cup of God's wrath forever in hell. You do as well. Here's the gospel. But for repentant sinners who believe in the atoning sacrifice of Jesus, Jesus has drained every drop. We don't even ever have to sip at that cup. In Gethsemane, God answers Jesus' request with there is no possible way to save sinners, no alternate sacrifice. But Jesus' love for you is so intense that he wills to do the Father's will to do the thing the very thought of which he thought might kill him right in the garden. In 1860, there was a novel written, and two years later, the poem that was in that novel was put to music. There was an explosion of this poem set to music around the world. And wherever believers met, they were singing this, and they're singing it today. And it contains probably the most profound truth in all of Scripture. And you know what it is, don't you? Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. Jesus' garden experience and what he experiences the next day proves how much God loves you, he sent the Son, and how much Jesus loves you, willing to drain that cup so that you don't have to drain it. Do you know Jesus? Do you know what bothers me so much in the latter years of my life? There are so many people I know who think they're going to heaven because they raised their hands somewhere, they joined a church, they were baptized. And I don't talk like this, you know it, but what could you do to me at this stage of life? As low as the market's 35,000, what could you do? They live like hell and think they're going to heaven. That is not salvation. Salvation is you receive Jesus as Savior and Lord. And Lord means if he says no premarital sex, there's no premarital sex. Or if you do that, you confess your sin and withdraw from that kind of thing. Or if he says you do anything, whatever it is, give up whatever idol, you give it up because he's Lord. Lord means you do what he says. Now, we will fail. We will fall into sin. We have the illustrations in Scripture. But a person who says, I'm on my way to heaven and lives like the devil and there's no conviction and there's no change is deluded. And at judgment day, they're going to say, Lord, we accepted you. We signed the card. And he's going to say, I never knew you. That could be you here today. And I'll tell you kids, being born into a Christian home and raised in a Christian home, that doesn't make you a Christian. Let's examine our hearts as we go to prayer. Father, I pray that everyone who is here will be able to be present in your eternal kingdom. Father, for those who have been putting off receiving Jesus as Savior and Lord, 
Have them confess their sins right now. Cause them to desire Jesus more than anything else. And Father, may they in a prayer of simple faith say, Lord, I recognize I need Jesus. I recognize what he did for me. I want him to come into my life. I want him now. I want him as Savior, and I want him as Lord. Father, for those who might be deceived, who signed on for a fire insurance policy, but have never yielded to Jesus' Lordship, Father, we love them. We don't want them to be deceived. We want them to understand what the demands of Lordship mean. Father, help them to confess and accept Jesus, we pray in his name.